I'm Guy Kawasaki. This is the Remarkable People podcast. This episode's guest is the remarkable Catherine Finney. She is an entrepreneur, investor, speaker, mentor, author, and pioneer. She has achieved many firsts. She started one of the first fashion blogs. It was called The Budget Fashionista. MSN called it one of the 100 most useful sites on the web. She was the first blogger to be credentialed for the New York City Fashion Week. She was the first blogger to receive a major book deal. She was the first blogger to appear on the Today Show. She started the first venture capital fund focused on black and Latinx women founders. She was appointed by the Obama administration to the National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship, and she was a White House champion of change. Catherine has received numerous honors and awards, such as the Grace Hopper ABIE Award, Working Mothers 50 Most Powerful Mothers, Route 100 List, Marie Claire's 10 Women to Watch, Entrepreneur Magazine's Woman to Watch, the Ebony Power 100, Black Enterprise 40 Under 40 List. She was inducted into Spelman College's Game Changers Academy. Her current project is called Digital Undivided. Its goal is to create economic opportunities for Black and Latinx women. Its services include research, thought leadership, and education. I'm Guy Kawasaki. This is the Remarkable People Podcast. And now, here's Catherine Finney. Does your heart do backflips because you were born and raised in Minneapolis and it's kind of the epicenter? Minneapolis is such an interesting place. So I grew up there in the 90s, primarily the 80s and 90s, and it was a place that was undergoing a great shift. So there was a lot of immigrants who were coming in um, from Ukraine, from Somalia, from Laos, particularly Hmong population. So it was it was becoming diverse. So it was this place that was very much not diverse in the middle of becoming diverse, like deeply Scandinavian, you know, people eating luda fish. I don't know if anyone heard of that, but it's like fish you soak and lie. It is like the most untasty thing ever. And so it was in this period of change that I grew up there and grew up with a really diverse group of friends and the possibilities were always there. I think at the same time, though, it's easy to be diverse when it's not in your backyard, right? And so people were really struggling about how 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 can we maintain these very Scandinavian liberal ideas when it's in our backyard now? Like we, it's not just over there, it's like here. And so we have to learn how to live with it. So it's not surprising that Minneapolis would have these challenges and has always had a history of challenges with policing. What I think is exciting is that Minneapolis is a place where the revolution can come from. And the reason why I say that is you have this openness to be corrected in Minneapolis that is not something I see a lot of places. So if you can present something that's authentic and different, there is an openness to hear it in Minneapolis. I mean, this was a city that had Keith Ellison first Muslim congressman and like Michelle Bachman <laughs> in district right next to each other. Literally. That's quite a contrast. 
And the governor is Jesse Ventura. I mean, like, you know, that's a pretty special place where you have all of that sort of going on. And so it's an openness. I'm excited to see how people are rethinking things and changing the premise. The head of the city council in Minneapolis is the first openly transgendered woman elected official. In me, right? Like you, you, so you have this incredible of people willing to think of things differently, but it's a challenge. And so I'm really excited to see what comes out. I have family members who are deeply, deeply involved on the ground with movement there, especially my niece who's Gen Z and who's like, I mean, these kids are so smart. They just, their grasp of policy. Like, I'm like, when I was 22, was I thinking about policy? I mean, I thought I was smart, but not like them. They're like taking it and then translating it into policy, into action. And, and all the things, the structures that existed before, like they don't, they don't give a F, but I don't know if I can swear, but they really don't care about it. They're like, so what? Like, why can't we do this? So I do think it's really exciting. I think this is an opportunity and I hope that we seize it for true change. If, if your niece shakes you up, imagine how I feel because you shake me up. So that's, that's a, that's a compounded shake up for me. We kind of went down this hole right away, but let's backtrack. So tell me the story of budget fashionista. Cause I think that is such a great story. Oh gosh. You know, I, so I started my career as an epidemiologist which has nothing to do with budget fashion, has nothing to do with startups, but was living and working a lot abroad and had a sick parent and also at the same time met my husband. And I was going to really far away places. Like this is early 2000s. I was going to Shremel Shrake in the Sinai. I wasn't going to like <laughs> Chicago. Like I was going like really far away places that would take like days to get to and realize that I couldn't have a sick parent and be 8,000 miles away. I also couldn't be married. Um, if I wanted to get married and travel three weeks out of the month, this was before FaceTime, this was before Zoom, it was before all the technologies we have now. So communication was just not easy. So I came back and, you know, I was dedicating my life to saving the world and realized I would have to figure out a different way to do that and was newly married. And it was frankly bored and shopping a lot. And my husband, who is an engineer, said, you know, have you ever thought about doing this thing called blogging? And I was like, like, what the hell is that? Like, I never heard of like, what is that? And he was like, oh, it's this thing where you write online. And so you can talk about your shopping and the things you're finding um, and you can communicate with people. And so we started the Budget Fashionista as a hobby. And it was so early and you would have, appreciate this. We had to use a platform called Gray Matter, <laughs> which was founded by this guy. I think his name was Noah Gray. And it was for him to sort of document some of the mental health challenges that he was having. It was like a public diary. And he took it and he like made it open source. So we we're using this open source thing. I had to learn how to code. I remember going to my husband's office because they had a T1 line. And it was so exciting because, you know, you could like, you could scan and get things uploaded in like three minutes instead of like 10 minutes. Now it's like instant, right? 
and scanning pictures of the shoes I was buying at Nordstrom's Rack and then having to code them in HTML and then to build my SQL databases and order the house. I mean, like all this stuff just for a picture to show up. And so we started and about six months into doing it as a hobby, we were contacted by the Associated Press because one of the things that I had read about was this thing called search engine optimization. And so I was writing, but I was using keywords or I was bolding them, all these little things. And it was coming up onto Google and people were just really starting to get into Google and they were using Google and this Associated Press uh, writer found me on Google and was like, I'm writing a story about people who travel to go shopping. And I was like, oh, okay, well, let's talk about it. And so we did this article on sample sales. It came out January 1st, 2004. And it changed my life. There was an old IBM commercial where a company puts their website up and then it's like the first second is like one person. (laughs) Then like a couple of seconds later, it's a thousand. A couple of seconds later, it's like a million. And that's what happened to me. And we weren't in the cloud. So we had to figure out. I mean, all of this stuff that now it sounds ridiculous to anybody who's like influencer on Instagram, but all the stuff I had to do for like pictures and things to show up, we had to have multiple servers because there, it wasn't the cloud. And so we had to figure out how to link them so that when one got overloaded, it could like scale to another. I mean, all of this stuff. And it just grew. It became a thing. In 2006, I, I published a book called How to Be a Budget Fashionista with Random House. And it's funny because Random House at the time and publishing didn't know anything about blogging. They were like, what? I mean, I was like one of the the top writers. They were just like, what is that? I remember getting in an argument. It was like a fight with the marketing team because they were angry that I was promoting Amazon links and not pushing Barnes & Noble and Borders, right? Borders doesn't even exist anymore. And, but the argument was, um, I created this thing called a blog book tour. And I was like, any person who writes about it um, and puts a link to Amazon, even if they don't write good things, I don't really care. Just link to Amazon. And the irony of it is, is that that book is now on like its 15th printing (laughs) because of all of those Amazon links are still around, but Borders (laughs) isn't right. And Barnes and Noble isn't. And so I'm with Random House still, but in the more the business imprint And it's funny because we're laughing about it now because, but in 2006, it was like, what are you doing? And it just scaled and it became this thing. And it was really exciting to see content and how it was growing and people trying to figure out what is the business of the internet, particularly in terms of content? How do you make money off of this? Is there money to be made? What, What is the direction? And so it was a really interesting period to see and to see things at the beginning. But then I discovered, and this was probably in 2009, 2010, that this was going to be limited. It was, it was changing. So blogging was very much service-based pieces, sometimes personal diaries, things like that. It wasn't as visual because the technology just wasn't really there yet, particularly in terms of getting f- photographs from the camera to online. That, that leap didn't really happen until the iPhone. Yeah. Like really, until that, and then it became so much easier for people to put visual content online. And then it started to really shift. And to be honest, I just don't want to take pictures of myself every day. I just don't. And 
I want to be in the moment. I want to, with my family and my friends, I don't want to say, stop, let's take a selfie. You know, like, I don't want to have to do that. I want to eat and talk and learn and experience and be present. And so really thought about transitioning and how do I do it? At the same time, I was part of an early incubator program in which I was the only person of color in, in the, in the program and was really met with some pretty harsh feedback and realities. It was the first time in my life that people had no expectations of me. And I grew up in Minnesota. I was used to being the only black person chocolate drop in a room. That was like not a problem at all. But I wasn't used to people having no expectations of me and even low. That that wasn't something I had ever experienced before. And it was difficult. And these were the other what other members of the incubator, the entrepreneurs, or were they the people who ran the incubator? Yeah, it was yeah. everyone. <laughs> um, it was, you know, it was so weird. So I remember I got up and I pitched. So one of the things is this incubator were calling you to pitch and randomly, that was the idea that you have to get up in front of this group of people and pitch. I was never once called on. So me being me, it was like, okay, I want to do it. And her was shocked that I was like, going to do this. And I'm like, okay. And so I got up and gave my, my pitch and it was like silence because they were surprised that it was so good. And it was a, almost a birch box of sorts for black women. And this was like 2010, right? So it was early subscription, early sort of that. And because I had the budget fashionista, I had relationships with all of these people from Alexis at Learn Vest to the founders of Rent the Runway because they had this platform and they wanted me to help promote. So I knew all these startups that were coming up. And I remember the reaction when I pitched was one person asked me, did I know of any fashion bloggers? And I was like, but you know, I'm like the dean of the, <laughs> like I know all of them. Like, one person said to me, I don't know if you can relate to other black women. This was a white guy. And me being me, I'm like, maybe he grew up in Harlem. I don't know. So do tell, do tell me how you don't think I relate. And he said, because I had an accountant and he didn't think most black women had accountants. So how would you be able to wait, relate? Wait, what, what? Be because you had an accountant, you, you could, as a black yeah. woman, could not relate to yeah. black people? Like what? Walk yeah. me through that line of reasoning. <laughs> I have no idea. You'd have to call him because it. And, but what's hard about it was it was in front. He of said this publicly, and publicly. And as a person of color, you know when people say stupid <laughs> shit to you because you, you get it. I can't yeah. think of any other better word other than that. And you're in public. And you have a moment and you have to think, what is the cost of me going <laughs> off on this person? Like, because if I go off on them, this is what's going to happen. So how do I handle this? And this instant calculations you're doing in your head of how to respond. And so my response to him was, does, does it matter as long? I think we all can relate to money. I think that's what we all are here for, right? We're all here to build businesses and make money. So whether I relate or not doesn't matter as long as they're my customers and clients. And, but it was really, it was really difficult. And it made me initially disillusioned with startup world. I was like, I just don't want to do this. And I kept building the budget fashion and then I sold it. And then I went on to blog her 
and was the editor at large and sort of built out their sort of lifestyle segment that they were building with the fashion and, and beauty people and learned about what it looked like to be in an organization, a startup that was venture funded. I didn't take venture or private equity for the budget fashionista, mostly because I didn't want to stay, right? I knew that if I took those things, I would be kind of married to it for a while um, and didn't want to be known as a budget fashionista for the rest of my life. So didn't take it and sold it, but went to Blogger and saw the other side, like what happens when you get venture? How does it impact your company? How does it allow you to scale? And learned an awful lot from Elisa, Lisa and Jory, who are all still great friends of mine and mentors about that and how do you build. And was while there, I went to conference. I think one of the first, the first time I went to South by Southwest, I was actually on a panel of yours. I had never been before. And um, with my dear friend, Patricia, and was just seeing how just black people, we just weren't in the room. Like, where were we? And that really inspired Digital Divided and the founded, uh, founding of it. It was, I know we exist. Why aren't we here? Where are we? Why aren't we here? What are the barriers? And because I don't, have the fear gene, as my husband tells me. I don't have that gene that tells you not to do something. I was like, okay, I'm going to just start something. Why not? And received early support. The first supporters were, of course, Blogger, which gave me the first tranche of money and gave me a lot of mentorship and assistance on how to actually do. We started off with a conference. Andreessen Horowitz gave us our, our biggest check. I used some of the money from starting my startup. Ogilvy at the time had a free space in New York. They had a sort of event space on 47th and 10th. And I had a friend who was an executive there and they had never really did anything in the space. So she was like, would you like the space? And I'm like, oh my God, yes. And you can have it for free. And we'll also give you some food. We're like, oh word, this is great. And we did our first conference in 2012. Our keynote speaker was then Mayor Cory Booker who had a startup called Waywire, if anyone can remember back then. And it was amazing. It was about 50 Black women founders, many who've gone on to pretty major things and major positions, both in tech and also in the startup world, and investors of all stripes. And it was incredible. We knew we had something. And we did it for three years. And wanted to expand the part that was most successful, which was like sort of mentorship, the virtual accelerator sort of thing that we were testing in 2012, 2013. And we had some partners who were interested, but had no data. And at the time, no one really had collected data on women, let alone black women. It was just, yeah, there's some women in startups. And you would say, okay, how many? Um, there's some women in startups. Like, <laughs> actually tell you the numbers and so you know I was really I didn't know what to do and my husband who's very pragmatic as only you know engineers can be was like didn't you like go to Yale and have a degree in epidemiology I mean like didn't you just like pay that thing off can maybe you can why don't you try to use that because you paid it off like use it do something with it and I was like oh my gosh I know how to do this and I think as women, even those of us who should know better, even as smart as we may be, 
sometimes we look outside of ourselves for the answer because we're often not trained to look within ourselves. And so I had the answer to my problem. I just didn't realize it, but I had it. first project Diane 2016 the numbers were shocking we did it originally as an internal report we were going to use this as a base to make this argument about why there needed to be gender focused accelerator incubator program but the data was so stark at the time we had only identified 88 black women led startups using the sort of Steve Blank definition. If we had gotten super real, it would have been even less. So we had to even be a little bit more liberal than than Steve's. And it was shocking. I mean, we kept testing the number because we, we couldn't believe that that was it. And anecdotally, what we noticed was when we would go out to VCs, so we used VCs, we combed, we did a lot of primary data collection. We combed the entire Crunchbase database of like 60,000 startups. We went to every VC we could know of. We asked them to send it. And we're like, send us everyone you think is black. <laughs> like, like literally, that's what we said. Don't even question it. Even if they have like a dark tan, like send us everybody and we will figure it out later. And what we found was fascinating. It was this sort of bias in which Investors would try to test us and they'd say, well, do such and such. And I'm like, yes. And then the next investor we talked to would say, do such and like the mm-hmm. same person the other person said. And what we realized is that they were counting like the one black female founder they knew more than once. Hmm. But it was only one or maybe two, but they were saying their names over and over again. And sort of in mind, when you hear the name over and over again, you start to think there's more people. It was really just one or two, which was really, really amazing. We also found in 2016 that only 11 black women had raised over a million dollars in venture funding. Four years ago? 11, yeah. No, yeah, this was four years ago. Wow. 11. So needless to say, we had... It was it was a point where we were really small staff. Like, what do we do with this? Because this is like so bad that what do we do with it? I don't even like where do you go with this? And so we received a little bit of funding to start our first incubator program. We started in Atlanta, and we had decided that we we're going to release this information because this was so. It, it was information that needed to be out there. You know, a lot of people think data wants to be free. This was information that wanted to be free and needed to be free out there for people to see. I did not expect it to have the impact that it had (laughs) um, in in changing things. And so that has been like super exciting to see how it's fostered discussions, especially now. There was an update done in 2018, which also had some interesting data. There, in 2018, it was over... 37 black women who had raised over a million dollars in in a two-year period was quite significant a lot of that having to do with the first project i am because i think when it came out it was a little bit of panic i mean the number of vc firms the number of lps who called me and were like 
we, we got a problem. What do we do? <laughs> this isn't good. How do we solve it? Was quite significant. So to see uh, in that two year period, the increase uh, was great. With reflection, what do you see as the main causes? Was it out and out racism? Is it the explanation would be, well, our, our pipeline of black female entrepreneurs is so small. That's not our fault that nobody comes to pitch us. Was it systemic? I mean, what, how do you explain that? You invest in what you value. Okay. And people didn't and probably still don't really value the work of black women and the work of, of black people. And I would even extrapolate that to even the work of black and, and Latino communities. Right. And I think it's, it's not just racism. It is in the fabric of our country. Our country was built upon free labor, right? Forced free labor for many, many years, right? And so here you have the group of people for whom you had free labor now assessing a value to their labor. And they want the same value that you assess to yours. And I think it's hard even now in 2020 for people to let go of that structure, to see the work that I do is equally as valuable um, as the work as a white man does. There's, it, it's the same product. It's the same value. Um, and maybe in some cases, maybe even more valuable because I'm a woman. I have access to different markets and knowledge that you may not have. I think that's really, really hard. And I think that's the discussions that we're starting to have about who do we value in America? And do we value everyone's contributions? Truly, do we value everyone's contributions? Or do we still value some contributions a little bit more than others? And I think that's the discussion that we're starting to have. If if I were a white female entrepreneur listening to this, would I be saying... It's just as hard for me, or would I be saying, thank God I'm not black and female? Well, you know, there's this interesting video that goes around and forgot her name. She's a really famous white lady who's been sort of educating on race for like 60 years. She has a really famous video with kids and dolls from like the 1960s. And she's talking to this group of mostly white people in the audience, and she says, how many of you here would trade places with a black person? And no one stands up. And so I think that kind of answers that question. Like no one would trade mm-hmm. places with me, right? No one would want to be sort of in in my skin. And so most of my white female colleagues and friends I know of, they acknowledge the benefits that they've received and that they're able to get further along than I am. But that doesn't mean that they get as far as white guys, but they're able to get further along because they, because the value question comes back again. So many white male VCs, they're daughters. They have daughters and they have people who they love, who are women that they want to see succeed. And so if someone comes in and, and reminds you of your daughter, it's not hard for you to see the value in them. It's not hard for you to see their humanity. And, and they benefit from that. There's very few VCs who I will remind them of their daughter. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> um, 
you know, even though I might have similar backgrounds to their daughters, when I come in, they're not like, oh my gosh, she looks like Jeannie or whatever. But, and so it becomes again, back to this value. Who do you value? Do you value my economic output at the same rate as you value others? I love to read, read obsessively. And one of the things I was reading about Harvey Milk, the great gay rights activist from San Francisco. And I was reading about how he kind of helped get the sodomy laws turned in California. And one of the things that he did was he had members of the gay community call their loved ones in like Orange County, right? This was in the 70s. So Orange County was even more conservative, right? Than it is now. And he would have them call them to come out because the idea was it's really hard to be mean to someone you know and love, right? It's really, really hard to to not see the humanity in someone you grew up with, someone you may have birthed, right? It's really, really hard to do that. And once people knew someone gay, then it was really hard to criminalize being gay. And I think one of the things, particularly in the investment world, but in the startup world in general, is not very many startup leaders actually have relationships with people who are black. And so if you don't have a true friend who is black, if you've never really talked to someone black, if you never really talked to someone um, who's a black woman, I mean, intimately, not just someone who is in a servant position to you, they're serving you, but really as an equal, as a friend, as a colleague, then it's kind of hard. It's a, hard, a little bit hard to see the humanity and it's hard to see the value. You don't actually have that connection. And I think that's one of the reasons why do, we also see Do you see think therefore that the pandemic has made things even harder because of a lack of analog personal connections? Or you think the pandemic mm -hmm. has leveled the playing field so everybody's just a little box on Zoom? You know, that's an interesting question. I think, so the irony of the pandemic, I don't even know if I would say it's irony. So it's impacted the communities that are probably the most essential the most, meaning, Imagine our world if we didn't have Amazon factory workers, if we didn't have the delivery folks from Amazon, if we didn't have the target cashiers or the cashiers at our grocery stores. Most of those people are people of color. Most of those people are not people who necessarily have college educations, right? And so what I think is interesting, it's shown how vitally essential we are how important our work is for just the movement, the daily motions of America. Most of the home healthcare aides are, are women of color, nurses, the people who are were keeping at, at America's lowest point, right, in recent history, the people who are keeping things move, moving were mostly black and Latino women. So, so does that mean with greater exposure, there's greater appreciation or it sticks them in a stereotype at a low compensation, low kind of position? I think it's more so communities of color, particularly women of color, we're starting to realize our power as a result of that. So I don't even know if it's really about white people anymore. 
I think it's kind of about us and realizing exactly who we are and our importance. And that if we didn't exist, you probably wouldn't <laughs> exist, right? Like, to those people, like, if we didn't exist, like, you would have to go out and get your own food. You would have to kill a chicken <laughs> if you didn't work at the right? All of these things. And I think it's now, as communities of color, we're starting to see what our power is. And we're starting to de- make demands as a result of that. Because we are so essential, we're the most essential of employees to the health of our country, to the, for, for us to even survive as a country, it's important for us to do well and to be healthy and happy at home. And it's in the best interest of white people that we are healthy, happy, and home, right? And because, again, you would have to go out and do your own things. And I think that what I'm seeing now is this discussion of the power that we have, because we have a lot of power. We are not powerless. We never were powerless. But I think the structures wanted us to think that way and believe that. And now we're realizing, oh, wow, we're, we're really important. So we don't want your policing anymore. We don't want your um, poor schools. We want health care. We know we need child care, if you want us to come and still work at your factory, you want us to come and still work at your warehouse, and you need to make sure that we're good. The next time this comes up, we may not be here. You can do it yourself. And I think that's that's the interesting discussion. That's the discussion I well, find more interesting. Well, let's then, hope that that yeah. discussion continues and grows. But there is a faction who is fighting that tooth and nail right the trend the demographic trend is not their friend but they're not exactly going with the flow nor taking advantage of this so what happens now i mean is it is it that you just have to swamp them or is there ever going to be a time when enlightenment increases and they see the handwriting on the wall I'm not sure if there's enough incentives for those people to change on their own. And to be really honest, I don't think I care about them. Okay. <laughs> um, mostly because it's, it's change is going to happen. It's forward momentum. Like you, it's physics. Like you, you can't do anything about it. It does not matter what they think in terms of where this is going. Like in, in the short term, sure, it can be disruptive, it can cause all sorts of things, and we're seeing that. But in the long term, it's moving forward. History is moving whether you want to want it to or not. And so you have a choice. And particularly for them, how do you want to be remembered? I was reading something about there's a Ruby Bridges who desegregated school, I believe it was in Arkansas. And, you know, there's a famous Norman Walkwell picture of her, like, walking as this little black girl and, like, the, the army next to her. Really famous picture. And so there's one picture of this white lady who's probably, like, 27 or 28 at the time yelling at the six-year-old black girl, right? I mean, it's like, if you can imagine, like, how yelling at a six-year-old is, like, hatred. And so it was an article where they went back and talked to that woman. Because, I mean, history has captured her in this way. And she had, like, years of depression, hard time reconciling that that's how history remembers her. For the for her entire existence, and even I think she might have actually passed away, 
the world remembers her as that. And so for these folks, do you want to be remembered as that? Because you're being recorded. And this is how the world is going to remember you when you're gone. It's like that. Because the world's moving forward. It's not going to go back to where you want to Do you think Donald Trump spends a nanosecond thinking about how he will be remembered? Oh, no, 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 he doesn't care. (laughs) I think, but actually, you know what? I actually, I, I think he... I actually think he does care what people think about him, but I think it's it's people who he sees as valuable. That's who he cares about. And I don't think, you know, people like me, he doesn't give, he doesn't <laughs> care about what I think at all. But I think for people who he admires and who he thinks are valuable, he does care. What the Gen Zers and the K-pop fans did to him this past week was probably the biggest blow they could possibly do, right? You have someone who really cares about being perceived as this strong, capable person who's in charge, and they literally took all of his power away from him for everyone to see. And I think those sort of things. That's why I just, I mean, I just love Gen Z. I just love how they just don't care. They're just like, whatever. That's what I say about you, Kevin. It's really weird. I'm, I'm I'm late millennial, early Gen X, and my role is being kind of like almost like an elder now, <laughs> even though I'm not super old, but I am an elder. And it's like, you know, for my nieces and her friends, it's like, look, you are doing exactly what you should do at 22. You should be out on these streets. You should be doing these sort of things. And my role is to bail you out. Literally. Like, that's what I, you know, I got you. So whatever you do, know that on the other end, you have a safety net. You have someone who's going to bail you out. You have someone who, if you want to talk strategies and things that I tried in the past, you want advice or you don't want advice, I'm here. But that's really, really my role. And then also figuring out how do we continue to do structural changes. And so really inspired by them. I'm inspired by the changes I see people doing. Um, inspired by even people who, who are trying to figure out what can I do, right? What can I do? And this is a really hard, complicated problem that is embedded in the fabric of our nation. And so it's not going to just be money that solves it. It's not going to be solved in a month. It's going to take some real discussions about who who are we. It's going to take some real discussions with, with white people, right? Sitting down, what does it mean to be white? What does it mean to be American? Like, really, what does it mean? What do we stand for? Who are we? Who are we as a community or communities? And that's not discussions that are easy to to have. Can I just ask you, so what should a 66-year-old Asian-American man do to help? (laughs) There's a couple of ways to help. I think one, listening. I think it's really important. I think... To most people, I think in this world, just want to kind of be left alone to succeed or not succeed based upon our own skills, right? And I think for, particularly for other people of color who have 
own challenging histories with America. When you see things calling it out very clearly, especially someone like you, for whom you really do have a voice and people really listen to you and calling it out and saying, yeah, this is, this is not good. One of the things I think, too, is there's some allyship things that I saw that were really interesting. So a couple of years ago, Anil Dash, who's amazing guy, he's like the CEO of Glitch now, he, for like a year, only retweeted women. Only retweeted women. Didn't never, like, tweeted, never tweeted, ad, never anything, any man. And because he knew the people who were on his Twitter feed never had access or linkages with women. And he knew that if he was only retweeting it, then all of a sudden on their feed, they would start to see because they were following him, right? And I just thought that was like a really tiny, simple thing. But I got a ton of followers as a result of it. And people who discovered me who would have never, ever had me in their sphere with this simple thing of saying, I'm just going to only retweet women for you. Okay, this is what we should do. I love this idea. So... Why don't I let you take over my LinkedIn account? Huh? You're like, you just take oh, my LinkedIn that. account. Oh, well, if you looked at my LinkedIn account, you would see how political I am. It, it's not about, well, this is how to optimize your resume in order to get a job. My LinkedIn account is, oh my yeah. God, you you should see the hatred. I. Yeah, yeah, let's I do that. that. Let's do I that. I would love that. I would love that. And there was something I... So there was something a friend of mine, Lovey Eiji, who is really, really well-known, like commentator, like New York Times, like amazing bestseller. And she did something where a, a group of white women allies, black women took over their feeds. Yeah. And it was like Julia yeah. Roberts participated, others. And I thought I would love to do this where a group of black women took over the feeds of some <laughs> white guys. I'm like, not, you know, I'm not white, dudes, right? right? It's not just white, but other <laughs> men of power. Yes, I know. Like, but men of power in okay. tech, would that Done. not be awesome? And how many people would be, okay. I would love, so, let's do it. No, I'm so serious. Like I have, let's I don't do know, a million and a half on Twitter. I have 3 million or so on LinkedIn. My my Instagram is mostly personal pictures, but you can take over that too. So that's, I don't know, 85,000. So do you want them all? Or you want to take them one at a time? Or how do you want to do this? No, we could do LinkedIn and Twitter would be fine. Because if I show up on your Instagram, it's a bunch of pictures of like a black woman. And and they'll be like, I, you want to tell them? Can I? Here's the thing. We're able to do a lot because people always yeah. undersell us. People always discount us. And the thing about it is when you're really, really smart and people discount you without knowing that you're really, really smart, <laughs> you're able to get a lot of shit done. You're able to do a lot. And before people even yeah. realize it, because they're discounting you on something that has nothing to do with your intellect or who you are. So by the time they discover who you really are, wow. you're like all the way down the road. And they're like, wait, what just happened? It's like, no, I never said I wasn't smart. You just assumed that. So while you were making your own assumptions and you were over here, I was doing all of this stuff. And you looked up and you're like, what the? And so that's what makes us powerful. We don't have any superpowers. We're not mythical or magical or anything. It's just we're constantly discounted. 
We're constantly undersold. We're constantly overlooked. And as a result, we've been able to just get shit done because we don't have to deal with the other stuff. I think that Um, black women should be large and in charge, not having to sneak around. Hopefully we will be. Hopefully we will be. I think we have our own flaws too. And, but I think it's this thing of the mental our mental capacity is great. And the reason being is that we're trained to, like I said, those calculations I had to do when that person was saying this in front of this whole group of people and how quickly I had to compute what I was going to say based upon and assess all the different possible scenarios in my head Mm -hmm. within like a three second time frame. We're trained to do that because of the societal structures. We have to think in that way. I call this person an MF in front of this group of 50, (laughs) you know, VCs. I'm not going to get funding and probably no other black woman's going to get funding ever from these people. So let me recalculate another way of responding. How do I not yell and scream? How do I not get angry? And, and that's the superpower. That's, that's where that it's really this capacity to assess a number of different situations all at once to figure out what is the best. Just, just remember that I put you on a South by Southwest panel before. I was way ahead of my time, right? So. <laughs> you were. You were. It was great. But no, I love the idea okay, of like so takeover. This, this, I don't like know about the organized more, but I can only yeah. speak from my account. So when your episode goes yeah. live, I'm going to announce in my episode that how long do you want it for? Just one Just day. day. I think a day okay. is like. Okay. So I'm going yeah. to announce in the episode when this goes live that you are now large and in charge of my LinkedIn feed and Twitter feed. And you can post whatever the hell you want Let's and do just it. go for it. Okay. I, <laughs> I don't want any unicorns or pixie dust. Okay. But. <laughs> right. I can do some unicorns. No, I would love that. And. I'm actually going to reach out to Lovey and see if she'd be interested. I mean, that that could be some help that I could use of getting some named white guys to allow. And it's and it's not just random black women that yeah. would take over their their um, it's, it's like ones that maybe someone you've invested in, someone you know, someone like, remarkable, and giving. <laughs> Someone remarkable. And there's a lot of women out there that I think could be incredibly powerful, particularly in the space of tech, where people are trying to grasp. I mean, get Serena Williams to take over Jack Dorsey. She could have mine too. I go with that. (laughs) Right? I mean, that would be pretty amazing. And we'll see if that could happen. But I think that would be, I think it would be really super powerful. Done. Done. So next question. I haven't asked many questions, but the yeah. <laughs> next question. So with all you know, your background, everything, total picture, what's your advice to black people, particularly young, I would say, like what what kind of mindset should they have? What What's the right perspective to be successful today?
there are no rules and old people don't know anything. That's all they need to know. And then the reason why I say that is that we're at a time where information is accessible in ways it's never been accessible, right? We have tools to organize that we never had before. If you can imagine what Martin Luther King could have done with Twitter, and he was probably the most masterful, masterful PR person we've ever seen in history. Knew how to use visual media like no one's business. Imagine if he had Instagram back in the day and what he could have done with that. So a lot of us older people, particularly those who are pre-internet generation, all the things that they're going to share with younger people are probably going to be wrong. And they're all old sort of structures, right? They're all old structures of how things had to be, what we would call respectability politics, that if you just do this, then they're going to do this. It doesn't work anymore. We've seen that doesn't work. So I say to young people, look, you guys have tools that were not available. You have access to information that was not available and use it and to develop. And what us older people, and I'm talking about older is really anyone 40 and over. What we can do is we can bail you out. We can give you funds to build it. We can provide you some advice on people, right? Because we've lived a little bit longer. So we know a little bit more about human nature. So we can give you some, some advice definitely on that. But in terms of structures, there are no rules anymore. You are not bound by anything anymore. As soon as Donald Trump was elected president, all bets were off. Anyone can be president. Anyone can. You don't even have to run. I mean, all of the rules. You don't have to be Obama perfect anymore. All of the rules no longer exist. So you get to create what it is that you want to see. And that's incredibly exciting. They actually, and this is for all young people, not just black young people or Latino young people. You get to create the world you want to see now because all rules have been disrupted thanks to Donald Trump. I think that's well, probably his greatest legacy is because he became president and all that he stands for means that every rule that we were told growing up of you have to go to college, you have to do this, you have to be this in order to succeed. All those rules no longer exist and you can do whatever the hell you want to do now. You can rebuild this in any way you want to do. And that I think is the most exciting thing. People, you can see that being mediocre is not a barrier <laughs> to success. Then that means that anyone can do it. I mean, all rules oh are my off. Like, so... So go for it. I mean, I love that they're, yeah, I don't have to listen to this. I don't have to do this. Who says that this is the structure we should have to do? You know, the how idea of, I can't even imagine five years ago people talking about, maybe we don't need to have police, or at least we don't have to have it in the same sort of way. Why, why do we have police responding to mental health challenges? Why do we have police responding, doing traffic tickets? and checking meters like do you need that to be police that does that like why and all these things but if you can imagine i wouldn't even say five years ago a year ago we have even be questioning yeah. these sort of things we have a pandemic that no one has ever seen before and i have did some talks since the pandemic has begun with various groups of people from young to old and i say all rules are off because we've never, there's no one alive who's been through a global pandemic right now. No one alive 
has ever been through this before. Except there was like one person yeah. who's like, I think yeah. 105 or something. <laughs> but I'm like, but like, there's like yeah. maybe one person who's been through this before. But for the most part, none of us who are currently running and managing things have been through this before. So anyone who tells you, well, this is the structure and this is how it has to go, they don't know because they've never been through it either. Like they're making educated guesses, maybe on history and some data trends, but they literally don't know. And so all rules and bets are off. There's a Sikh, Sikh philosopher, Valerie Kerr, and she says, what if we're not in the darkness of the tomb, but in the darkness of the womb? Meaning we're in the darkness right before birth. And that's where we're at right now. Well, let's get some Pitocin and get on with this. <laughs> or a yeah, C-section, I mean, whatever it, it takes. I'm, I'm yeah. So, Catherine, I'm going to end this recording now because it ain't going to get better than this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've just loved having you. I, <laughs> by any chance, do you know Simone Sanders? So I don't, we're not, like, I don't know, know her, but we've been in a room yeah. together. You mean the oh my God, you would love her. Yeah. I love her. Talk about a large and in charge, yeah. kick ass black woman. Oh my God. Yeah. She, you got to get to know her. You you would love her. Yeah, yeah. And I I looked at your Twitter feed and I saw this uh tweet about the first black female NASCAR pit crew member. Also a great yeah, story. Yeah. I mean, that would be a great movie. I mean, I can only imagine the stories that she has and I mean, would we have ever thought we would be in a world where NASCAR is like saying Black Lives Matter? <laughs> I mean, I'm like, wow, we have really... And John Bolton is the good guy? Turned <laughs> we're, in, we're, we're in a different... It is a different space right now. We're in a very different space. And... My only concern is that you, you, this is a, this is probably not infinite. It's probably finite. We probably only have a, a short period of window to do things. And so I hope that we, while people are open and kind of uncomfortable and they're in this space and wanting to get back comfortable, that we kind of redefine things while we can. And that's, that's my only uh, fear is that we're going to squander mm -hmm. this and do like small, tiny incremental change, but not anything big or bold. That really is what we're gonna to need to do if if we don't wanna to have to deal with this again. Well, I, you know, I don't so we'll know see. if there could be a more interesting time to live in, that's for damn sure, so. It's <laughs> yes. very interesting. Yeah. I'm excited to see, and I live in the South mostly, so I live in Atlanta, which and many parts are still fighting the Civil War here. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, they haven't gotten the memo. Now tearing down yeah. some Confederate statues yeah. in Atlanta. And so I'm excited to see what happens. America, you know, it's almost every hundred years that we had a revolution, mm -hmm. right? Like 1776, then Civil War, and then the Civil Rights Movement. But now it's only 50 years between the Civil Rights Movement and this movement. And probably because of social media, it's probably going to only be like 
you know, 25 years before the next movement. And so it's going to be really exciting to see sort of what changes happens and if we can get more of it right and get a little bit bolder. Okay. So it's probably a few week process to get this edited and all that. And then I'm going to contact you. We release on Wednesday mornings and I'm going to contact you about a week in advance and say, okay, so next Wednesday, you are Guy Kawasaki for a day. God help you. I love that. Oh my God. Here's a couple of reviews for you. Brilliant and refreshing podcasts. Noka Oi 5 This is Guy 2.0 at his finest. These podcasts are direct, no holds barred and insightful. Guy manages to bring out personal insights about his guests that they would only share with someone that they trust. Guy's podcast on innovation is like a greatest hits album, digitally remastered for both his loyal followers and new fans. Thank you, Noka Oi 5 Here's a second one. Awesome podcast by Guy, Puneet from East Coast. Guy Kawasaki is a remarkable person holding podcasts of all remarkable people. His podcasts are awesome. He structured them very nicely, and there is so much to learn from these podcasts. Guy, please keep them coming. Puneet, I promise you that I will. If you like my podcast, please go to the Apple Podcast app and review it. Maybe I'll read yours next week. So, back to Catherine Finney. Did you get the impression that Catherine is a kick-ass kind of woman? You'd be right about that. She is loud and proud and has every right to be. I was so enamored with this interview that I offered her my social media platforms. So for 24 hours from Tuesday at midnight to Wednesday at midnight, she has all my platforms at her access. Go and check out my accounts at LinkedIn and Twitter. They're both Guy Kawasaki to see what she's posting. If you are a woman entrepreneur, be sure to follow the work of Catherine Finney. As we discussed, her latest project is called Digital Undivided. Speaking of undivided, Peg Fitzpatrick and Jeff C. are part of my undivided team and providing this podcast to you every week. My thanks to both of them. Also, for this particular podcast, Alyssa Camahort Page helped me make this interview possible. I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. Wash your hands, maintain social distance, wear a mask, and listen to scientists and doctors, not politicians, and let's all get through this pandemic together. Mahalo and aloha. This is Remarkable People.